Section 21 of The Outline of Science, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matea Bracic. The Outline of Science, Volume 4, by J. Arthur Thompson. Chapter 37. The Science of Health. Part 2. Respiration and Circulation. So much for the relationship between food, muscular exercise and general health. But as we have already indicated, food and muscular exercise cannot be considered apart from respiration and circulation. If the food keep the heart and lungs going, no less do the heart and lungs give the food its driving power. We have already explained that the main source of the energy of the body is the energy liberated by the carbon on oxidation. The oxidation of the carbon is affected by the oxygen which is loosely combined with the colouring matter of the red blood corpuscules. The act of respiration brings oxygen to the blood and removes from it the carbon dioxide which collects in it as a result of the combustion of the carbon in the tissues. Except for the oxygen and the oxidation, the energy ultimately traceable to the solar rays might remain latent in the carbon compounds forever. Who knows for how many hundred thousand years the solar energy has been imprisoned in the mastodon's tooth, Er Gimbernat swallowed it in his soup, and oxidized it with the oxygen of his blood, and turned it into heat and motion? The regulation of both circulation and respiration is automatic. When a man does hard muscular work, his breathing automatically quickens and deepens in order to provide oxygen and remove carbon dioxide and the heart beats stronger and faster to carry oxygen to the tissues and carbon dioxide from them. During hard exercise, ten times as much oxygen may be consumed and ten times as much carbon dioxide discharged as during rest. Plainly, then, a man's muscular energy depends not only on the energy supplied to his muscles by his food, but also on his respiratory and circulatory efficiency. A man may have a good digestion, but if his lungs or his heart are diseased or impaired in their action, he will not have full energy. The three great systems must work in harmony, and the strongest member of the Triple Entente must accommodate itself to the capacity of the weakest. A man with a weak digestion must recognize the fact, and must cut his coat according to his cloth. The essence of health is harmonious energy and lack of health is largely disharmony. The average man does not require a large income and output of energy, but he requires such efficient and harmonious working of his vital organs as will make mental and physical work, within reasonable limits, not only possible, but pleasurable. And this happy consummation is within the average man's reach, if he eat, exercise and breathe wisely. Food and exercise we have already discussed. Let us now look for a moment at breathing. The breath of life. In recent years, a great deal has been written on the subject of breathing exercises. Breathing, however, is an automatic action, which never ceases from birth to death, an action, too, which is regulated by a series of nervous and chemical reflexes, and breathing exercises for a few minutes a day will have little effect on the total ultimate respiratory efficiency. The best breathing exercises are muscular exercises in the open air. 
any exercise whatsoever that demands oxidation for muscular work will, as we have said, quicken and deepen the breathing. And the quickening and deepening will not, as in voluntary breathing exercises, stand by themselves. They will be an integral part of a general increase in vital activity. The chief desiderata are that the exercises should be qualified by the efficiency of the heart and lungs, and that they should be taken in the open air, so that plenty of oxygen may be ready to hand. Only in this way can the average activity of oxidation and the average output of vital energy be increased, and to the ordinary man leading a sedentary life, it is the average output of vital energy, the average output of mental energy, that matters. The body temperature. There are other things, however, even more important than muscular exercises for the maintenance of respiratory activity at a height conducive to mental and physical energy, and these things are temperature and skin reflexes. As we have already pointed out, about 80% of the energy value of food is manifested as heat, and the heat normally maintains the body at a temperature of about 98.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Since then, any increase in muscular energy means proportionate increase in heat production, there must also be increased loss of heat from the body, else the temperature of the body will rise. For instance, 200 calories of an increase in output of muscular energy will mean an increase of 800 calories in heat production. And if this extra heat be not conducted or radiated or evaporated away, the temperature of the body will rise. Briefly, there can be no increase of muscular energy without quicker production and loss of heat. And if loss of heat do not keep pace with production of heat, the temperature of the body will rise, and fever with disastrous results will follow. Nature meets this situation by taking measures to accelerate and facilitate the loss of heat. The skin becomes flushed with warm blood so that the heat can radiate away into the atmosphere, and the skin also becomes moistened with sweat so that heat may be removed by evaporation. But it is plain that if the atmosphere be hot and damp and still, these measures will not be very efficacious since both radiation and evaporation will be hindered, and in such a case nature wisely refuses to allow an increase in the output of energy. She takes away a man's appetite and slows down his vital machinery. We know that in hot, damp climates all men suffer from lack of energy, and that muscular work often means heat apoplexy. The Climate Under the Clothes the commonest cause of ill health, lack of appetite, lack of energy, lack of spirits, general tiredness, is nothing else than a damp, warm, still atmosphere, sometimes outside, sometimes inside, sometimes both outside and inside a man's clothes. In a warm tropical climate, the trouble is chiefly in the outside atmosphere, but many of those who do not live in the tropics like damp, warm, still air in their rooms, especially next their skin and under their clothes. It is the climate under the clothes that is of the chief importance to health, and there are thousands of people in England who keep under their clothes the climate of a tropical marsh, hot, damp, stagnant. They render it impossible for heat to escape, and nature has to choose between giving them heat apoplexy and damping their furnaces. 
she chooses the less of the two evils and dumps the damp man's furnaces and he is ungrateful enough to complain of lack of appetite and lack of energy luckily for themselves most men live in two climates at once their bodies arms and legs languish in the tropics while their face neck wrists hands ankles and sometimes feet carry on in a temperate or cold climate in fact face neck wrists hands ankles and feet act as radiators and if it were not for these radiators most english men and women would be as limp in london as in zanzibar if a man were to wear an undervest and a shirt and a waistcoat and a coat and an overcoat over his whole body face hands and neck his energy would quickly flag it is just his radiators that save him and the open neck dresses that women have recently been wearing undoubtedly increase the energy of women by increasing their radiation but such radiators are not enough if a man wishes to enjoy energetic health he must burn energetically and must permit free radiation from his whole body we go to the hills and the seaside and we at once feel invigorated and say that the change of air has done us good but there has been no change of air it is just the same air as before only it is air in motion with hill breezes or sea breezes and it gets under our shirts blows away the damp hot air there and increases radiation without adequate radiation it is impossible for either the engines of the body or the engines of a motor-car to work efficiently moving air within our walls and within our garments is a prime condition of good working capacity the climate under the clothes is of importance not only from the point of view of loss of heat but also from the point of view of loss of water under normal conditions of heat and exercise the skin excretes about a pint of water every twenty-four hours and during violent exercise in great heat quarts of water may be excreted if the air under the clothes is saturated with moisture not only is the cooling of the skin by evaporation hindered with results we have already noted but the excretion of water is retarded and the tissues are apt to get waterlogged there are millions of sweat glands with tubing altogether twenty or thirty miles long and any interference with their free secretion reacts injuriously on the health we have all experienced the tired feeling consequent on wearing an air-tight and waterproof coat a man living in a room full of warm still air is bound to have a damp subtropical climate under his waistcoat unless he have actual open window ventilation and the ventilation of a room is not satisfactory unless it remove not only the vitiated air within the walls but also the damp and vitiated air under the garments thorough ventilation is the draught in the furnace of vitality in still other ways the climate under the shirt is of great importance in the production of energy in nature and origin the skin and the brain are bound up together and messages from the skin nerves play a great part in the initiation and regulation of impulses from the brain to the vital organs a cold douche makes one gasp a cool breeze restores a fainting man stimulation of the skin excites breathing movements in the newborn infant and messages from the skin to the brain are followed by messages from the brain that bring about contraction or relaxation of the vessels of the skin to suit the temperature of the air 
but when we surround the skin with a layer of warm damp stagnant air we shut it off from the stimulus of moving air and also from the stimuli of heat and cold and no messages go from the skin to the brain urging it to quicken the respiration or increase the blood pressure and so the nerve centres in the brain that control breathing and blood pressure become lethargic and the vital functions suffer in their efficiency a man whose whole skin is open to the stimulation of moving air of heat and cold and perhaps of light will have more physical and mental energy than a man who protects his skin from these natural and healthful stimuli open air and light the open air treatment of tuberculosis is based on the physiological principles which have just been explained the patients are encouraged to live night and day in moving air the result is that oxidation is encouraged and the energy of all the vital functions increased not only as regards such functions as circulation and respiration but also as regards the secretory and excretory functions and the chemical processes that play a part in resisting microbes and their poisons what exact part the sun's rays themselves may play in the matter is uncertain but recent research work suggests that it may be important and that the chemical processes taking place in the blood are greatly affected by light it is probable therefore that measures for abating the smoke nuisance in industrial centres are even more urgently required in the interests of health than had previously been supposed end of section twenty one